Black Lives Matter. That powerful statement quickly became a hashtag in 2013, and through diligent work, it has become, as Alicia Garza, one of the co-founders of Black Lives Matter, says, it has become our generation's stamp on a movement that is and has been ongoing. And while Black Lives Matter is a big part of Alicia's story, of course, it didn't start there. For nearly 10 years before all this began, Alicia worked as a community organizer. She got her start by knocking on doors in the Bay Area. And in the same way we talk about sexuality as being an orientation, just a part of who you are, the same is true with Alicia and her work as an organizer. It's just how she's oriented. It's in her bones. And she's put this lifetime of lessons and learnings into her book, The Purpose of Power, which is now out in paperback. So from The Advocate magazine, in partnership with GLAAD, I'm Jeffrey Masters, and this is LGBTQ&A with Alicia Garza. One of the things you write is that this book is what you wanted and needed to read when you first started out. And then you also say that, honestly, it's the words you need right now. Why is that part also true about you needing these words and lessons now? You know, we're in a time of monumental change. And sometimes when you're in the middle of chaos, it's helpful to have a compass. And I really do think that this book is like a compass. The process of writing the book for me was grounding in the sense that I had a chance to think about how I've been shaped and think about where I got my values and my ideas from, think about the experiences that have shaped me and ask myself, what lessons are useful in this period? And those are the lessons that I'm offering in this book. This book is partially about how I come to be, you know, where I come from, how my um, politics have been shaped. But really, it's not intended to be about me. It's intended to be an exercise for everybody, right, to do the same as we're all contemplating what role can I play in the change that I seek. And then, of course, the second part of the book is very much about interrogating lessons that I've learned through, you know, 20 years of making social change. And I'm hoping that those lessons are useful for people who are both seasoned in this work and also people who are coming into the work of social change and asking how they can be effective whether or not the things they're experiencing every day are things they should ex be experiencing, right? In as much as I wanted this to be a toolbox for people, it also was a really helpful set of reminders for myself to clarify things that I already knew or to interrogate things that I thought I believed but have changed my mind about and to really ground myself again in hope. I am hopeful and I know that change can happen. I've seen it in my lifetime. And so I needed this book because at that time when I was writing it, I wasn't sure where we were going or if anything we were doing was working. <laughs> so it was also a good reflection point. I think like every discussion we have nowadays, like interpersonally, it's like we've no hope. It's all gone. So yeah. like I think it is good to hear that you are somebody people look up to. I consider you very clear-eyed. And so I'm like mm. personally happy to hear that you do have hope. <laughs> I do. I do have hope. Although, you know, I'm I'm halfway glasses full and halfway the glass is empty. It's just kind of how I am. But these days I'm I'm hopeful even though things are chaotic. 
One of the things that you wrote in the book that I wrote down, which goes back to, you know, these lessons and beliefs you have, you said, building support did not mean we had to water down our politics. It didn't mean we had to be less radical. It meant that being radical and having radical politics was not a litmus test for whether or not you could join our movement. I think that that should not be radical, like what I just said, but in practice, it kind of is. That's right. We are in the fight of our lives right now. And there's been so much conversation over the last year, especially about, you know, have we gone too far? And we do that both in terms of the conservative movement. Has the conservative movement gone too far? I mean, the answer is yes. And then, you know, um, in terms of the progressive movement, you know, have we gone too far? So all the hand-wringing and pearl-clutching about defund the police is the same hand-wringing and pearl-clutching that was being done about Black Lives Matter a decade ago. And and the, the thing is, is that you don't get far being mealy-mouthed about what you want. <laughs> you just don't, right? Like my mom used to say, a closed mouth don't get fed. And that is 100% true. Other people might have heard it as like the squeaky wheel gets the grease, right? We have all these <laughs> euphemisms for speaking up for yourself and speaking up for what you really want and what you really believe. And at the same time, it's important for us to remember that all of us have gone through a process where we've had to change our minds about a thing, or we've had to overcome our fears about a thing, or we've had to ask ourselves what we really believe about a thing. You know, my friend iGen, who I work with at the National Domestic Workers Alliance, she always says, you know, we have to make room amongst the woke for the waking. And it's something that we don't do well. When we look at the conservative movement, right, which has built so much steam and power over the last, you know, 40 years, they invest in a slow process of radicalization. They do that by building institutions where they can capture people, right, where they're forming their ideas and where they're learning about what they care about and what they believe. They do that by creating an inclusive home where people can belong and giving people a sense of belonging. And they do that by rewarding people, right, for their progress. <laughs> and, and it's something that we can learn from, right? I mean, I always say that there's times when we are arguing about if it's Earl Grey or Slate Grey versus like, you know, what are the colors that should be included here? <laughs> right? It doesn't matter. It's all gray, right? So I just, I wanted that in the book because I think sometimes we can feel so isolated in our vision for the world that we want. And we get really excited when we meet people and we engage with people and connect with people that want what we want and believe what we believe. And the tendency can be to hunker down as opposed to open. There are so many people out there who are looking to get involved. There are so many people out there who are looking for us. And our job is to find them, to give them a home, to give them something to believe in and a vision to fight for, and to hold the contradictions of what it means to grow and evolve as a person. This kind of reminds me of something that Sarah Shulman said when I spoke to her. Sarah, the author of Let the Record Show, the ACT UP oral history, she said that no one was ever kicked out of ACT UP. They had huge disagreements, of course, but they never kicked anyone out. 
And then today, it just feels like we have set these impossible standards for each other in order to participate. That's right. But the question I have is about the tension between those two things. Is there conflict between, no, we don't need to water down our politics, and then the goal, which is achieving broad support? There can be. And this is such an important conversation for right now because there are no shortcuts to getting to where we want to be. And sometimes we gimmick our way to false victories. And the way that I see that conversation happening right now is, you know, around bipartisanship. You know, we throw around that word as if the way to win is, you know, reaching across the aisle and uniting with people that you disagree with in order to get a thing done. And while that can be a practical solution for short-term gains, and sometimes you do need to do that, right? It is not a sustainable long-term strategy for transformational change. The truth of the matter is not everybody is coming and not everybody is always going to agree. And we have to hold that complexity with how do we hold our values and our integrity while also building as broadly as we possibly can. I think that when we start talking about bipartisanship in relationship to like criminal justice reform, for example, there were a lot of conversations at one point about, you know, working with the Trump dynasty to like get things done. I'm, I don't want to mince words here. Some people will disagree with this. It makes people feel better to think that we're like uniting with people that we're not forcing to think exactly the way we think and all of that. And that's important. But where do you draw the line? That's the question. There is a line between coalition building and, and building unlikely coalitions of people and entities that nobody ever thought would get together. And then the integrity of those coalitions. Like, do you draw the line at people who want to kill you? <laughs> do you draw the line at, you know, people who are causing like untold destruction and devastation? Where do you draw your line? You know, I'm not here to define that for people. I think it's something that we don't talk about openly enough. There is a line between being a coalition builder and being an enabler. And I think we have to um, hold that with some complexity and have rigorous conversations about it. I'm not interested in uniting with people like Jared Kushner. I'm just not. And I think I can get things done without uniting with people like that. I um, am more, because, right? Because more often than not, what they're doing is using you for their nefarious purposes. And so while you're getting a little bit of something, they're getting a lot of bit of something. On the other hand, right, am I down to unite with, you know, a white farmer who might think that Black people are lazy because he doesn't know any, but also is dealing with similar struggles around being able to, you know, have access to land and capital so that they can, you know, run a business and feed their family. Yeah, that I can do, right? <laughs> I mean, ultimately, we've got the same goal and there's some things that we've got to figure out. I want us to have honest conversations about when and where we might be taking shortcuts, when and where we might be enabling really bad things for the sake of kind of good things. Um, and I want us to have conversations actually about, you know, what is the political landscape that we're operating in? 
Sure. In government and in politics, it is a game of compromise. You cannot get things done, right, according to how the government is structured, if a majority of people don't agree. What we have learned is that if we haven't built the power on our side, right, to ensure accountability, then what ends up happening is we are capitulating in a bunch of ways without actually getting enough out of it. And in these times, the stakes are really high. There is a flip side, though. And just on the progressive side of the movement, I think something that can happen is we can be afraid to be powerful. We have such a healthy and robust distrust of government and business, right, that we can be like, you know, everything is corrupt and I can't, you know, we can't do anything with anybody. And I don't believe in that either. I actually feel like there are a whole range of interests in this country. And at times our interests will align and at times they won't. And the way to move forward, right, is to have a correct assessment of what is in motion right now, in reality, not just how you want it to be. So for example, if we were to think about the movement for LGBT rights, there were a lot of alliances that were built, a lot of things that people disagreed with, right? Like some people disagreed with the mainstreaming, right? <laughs> um, and, you know, was it impactful to have stories about queer families on television? Or did that try to fit us into a box of, you know, heteronormativity? That's a good debate. We should have it, right? And at the end of the day, progress was made and it opened up new challenges and contradictions. Can you elaborate though a bit what you mean by like why we are afraid to be powerful? Like what you mean by that? Yeah, progressives have been without power for so long that we're just not practiced in it, right? Like when I was growing up in the 1980s was really when there was a shift in the balance of power politically in this country. I spend a lot of time in the book trying to make that history accessible and compact, where I talk about the rise of the right. I talk about the different factions and coalitions within it. I talk about the rise of the moral majority and then how it actually shaped politics for the next 20 years. When you have lacked power for so long um, and you're in an environment where power is being exercised in very corrupt ways, it can be enticing to think that our job is just to like build a fiefdom on the side. But again, <laughs> we're fighting not just for ourselves, right? But we're fighting for the country. And so even though, right, I believe that a majority of people in this country actually want relatively similar things, we have been afraid to pursue different strategies to be able to get there. In the book, I talk about electoral organizing and the ambivalence that progressives have had for years around being in positions of power where we're making decisions about where resources go and where they don't go, where we're making decisions about the political agendas that we're moving and the policy agendas that we're moving. What I want to get across here is not a bashing of our movement. It's actually a loving push to expand what we think is possible. What would it look like if we were the people making decisions? What do we need to do in order to get there? Is it enough just to have progressives in positions of power? Or do we want to do more than that and actually transform how power is operating? These are live questions for us right now, and they have been live questions for a long time. I don't want us to be 
so down on ourselves, <laughs> right? That we're like, oh, progressives can't do anything and I'm going to own the liberals or all that rhetoric. Like that's not where I'm at. I'm at a place where I'm saying we have the right vision that will ensure dignity and safety and thriving for the majority of people in this country and we can't be afraid to pursue it. But part of what that means is that we have to enter into territory that is unknown. The shorthand way of saying this, right, is everything we leave on the table, we're leaving for somebody else to eat. If we're not contending for power in government, if we're not contending for power in media, if we're not contending for power in all of these places where decisions are being made, then we are, in essence, cutting off our nose to spite our faces. And concerning like the LGBTQ movement, we've seen like issues galvanize community like HIV AIDS and marriage equality. And then since then, you know, there's not like kind of like an agreed upon purpose or focus. Yet at the same time, you know, we've seen the majority of state houses across the country, you know, trying to bar trans youth from playing sports, bar trans youth from having access to healthcare. How do we begin to convince people in and out of the community that they should care about these things? I think that for a lot of people conditions are getting worse and our lives are becoming more and more insecure. I think that convincing people to do something is really contingent on people feeling like the actions that they take will actually matter. And so that is the work that I do. That's the work that a lot of us are doing. Um, and from voting rights, right, to housing, to healthcare, why we engage in politics is to demonstrate, right, that politics can actually work for people. And that means that it is incumbent upon us, right, to make sure that we're meeting needs, especially in the places where people's needs aren't being met, and then translating that, right, into power. People have a thirst, right, for surviving and for doing more than surviving, doing more than just trying to make ends meet. You know, I have seen over and over again people who stood up to fight when they didn't think that they could, when they didn't think that they would win, when they didn't think that anything would come of it, when they thought they weren't the ones. And it is such a beautiful process to watch people see and activate their own power in relationship with others. And it transforms people. I know I've been transformed by it. And I know so many people out there who have been transformed from feeling like things are happening to you to feeling like I can make things happen. And that is really the job of an organizer. It is to transform people from feeling like things are happening to me and I can't do anything about it to I'm going to make things happen and I'm going to be the one to do it. What was that moment for you when you first felt that transformation? You know, I started organizing so many years ago. Wait, sorry. Can I cut you off for a second? Of course. I, I'm so happy you said that because in the narrative of Black Lives Matter, you know, there was this woman named Alicia Garza and she took to Facebook one night and she wrote a post about how Black lives do matter. And like that kicked off this thing. And it was many years later that I realized like that woman, Alicia, had like 10 years of organizing behind her. She was not just like a disgruntled like housewife. Yeah, totally. <laughs> it's true. I, there is a narrative that we kind of dropped out of the sky. It's important for people to know that for so many of us, we've been organizing in our communities for 
almost a decade prior to Black Lives Matter. In fact, this week, you know, with the release of the paperback, I also put out a picture of baby Alicia in 2003 in an organizing program that I was in, learning how to be an organizer in West Oakland. It's adorable, actually. I was looking at myself like, oh my God, girl, were you ever that young and small and all things? It could, that girl like expected like what would happen. Yeah. I mean, it was literally 10 years before Black Lives Matter ever emerged. My first fight was around trying to get contraception in school nurses' offices in my school district. You know, this was in a context where the moral majority movement was really gaining steam and they had attacked sex education. Um, they had attacked abortion. They were attacking queer communities, right? This was right around also the height of the AIDS crisis. And there was all this hand-wringing and panic around teen pregnancy, right? So this is where shows like Teen Mom come from, right? Because there was this whole uproar, right? That, you know, kids were, you know, having sex and, you know, making babies. And then those babies were, you know, draining public resources, right? So this was also really targeting communities of color, targeting poor communities, targeting immigrant communities. You know, the first time I had a sense of my own power was fighting and winning the ability to um, have access to contraception in school nurses' offices, which was awesome because, truth be told, in seventh grade, um, a lot of my peers were becoming sexually active and they weren't getting the information that they needed to be able to do that safely. And so that meant they were getting information about how to be safe from you know, older siblings or friends or television. And at that time, like, people weren't really talking about this. So um, what that meant was that people were at risk and doing things that were not safe and doing things that were, that could be harmful. And so to me, there were so many conversations not happening, <laughs> particularly with people who are being directly impacted by this. And um, I'm glad that we won that. And it made me feel like anything was possible. As a kid, you're like, oh, cool. Adults listen. <laughs> you know, adults have been convinced. But part of what drives me as an organizer, part of what drives the work that I do every day is seeing people be transformed and I know that feeling very personally. You know, when we're talking about democracy, right, that's actually what we're talking about. We're talking about people feeling like their participation matters and that they can shape the conditions of their own lives. That's what we're fighting for. And so you started out, you know, in your local community, knocking on doors, you know, making connections, like having one-on-one -on -one conversations. When you then became a national organizer? Did you have to like figure out what your tactics were gonna be? You know, it's interesting. I have been doing this work for a while and what it really entails is building relationships that have depth and that have substance. What was the hardest transition was not being a national organizer per se, it was being such a public figure as somebody who's very private and used to working in the background. And I don't think I've really gotten used to being so public. I prefer to just do the work that's needed. And, you know, I'm not afraid of shining, but I also, that's just not how I was 
brought up. And that's not how I learned how to do this work. So I think the other transition that's been really difficult, if I'm being honest, is there's now a fascination with the work that I do that did not exist before. <laughs> like, I think the first time I ever heard about organizing in the mainstream was when Barack Obama ran for president and talked about his his time as a community organizer. And I could tell people still didn't get it, but they loved Barack, right? So they were like, that's really cool. If Barack Obama did it, then it's cool. Um, but now there's so much attention being paid to this work of building relationships and transforming people's understanding of their own power. And it can be overwhelming at times. It's a good thing. It's absolutely a good thing, but it's it can be overwhelming at times. I remember having conversations like three or four years after Black Lives Matter started when I found out that this organization was founded by three women. And then maybe like a year later, having conversations being like, wait a second, one or two of them might be queer. It's two. It's you and Patrice. Yeah. <laughs> I, I felt so much pride mm. that like, oh my God, someone in my community played this massive role in this organization. There was so little information actually about you online at that point that it was like hard to actually like confirm because I like, you know, I'm like the personal section of your Wikipedia page <laughs> and this was like not filled out at the time. <laughs> and, and so I guess like um, one of my question is like, was that in, like more or less intentional because you were kind of afraid of the spotlight. You know, it's interesting. Like I am really rooted here in the Bay Area. There's no questions about me being queer here in the Bay. Um, you know, up until recently, I was in a relationship for 17 years. And it's fascinating to me that one, I have a lot of pride. Um, and, you know, it's it's funny because amongst the three of us, Opal and Patrice and myself, you know, Opal would be like, people are always clocking me as queer, but I'm not. And it's messing up my dating life. And we're like, sorry, girl, that's just how it goes, you know. But um, what a transformation, right? I mean, think about 40 years ago, 50 years ago, people were fighting for the same things that we're fighting for right now. And it was absolutely not possible to be out, to be queer, to say that you're gay or lesbian or bisexual or transgender, right? Like it just was not possible. Our conditions as a society did not allow for it. And one of the things I'm really proud of is how we have fought unapologetically um, to not be left behind. I think that it's a an advance that I'm really proud of in terms of what we've been able to accomplish together. Um, not just the three of us, right? But as 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 a movement, we still have a lot of work to do. We still have a lot of work to do. I mean, representation is not power. It's not like we're not still struggling around um, not just being seen, right? We're much more visible than we were before, but um, in terms of decision-making and in terms of resourcing and all of that, like we still have a, a ways to go. And then the other thing I'll say about what I think this movement has intervened on, I think that we have uh, brought forward a new way of imagining who can be movement who moves, right? So um, in that way, 
when I say it wasn't possible before, it's not like we weren't there. <laughs> it's not like we weren't there. It's not like we weren't shaking trees. I mean, 100% we were shaking trees. But the challenge here, right, was that the stories that we tell about who was doing that, we've turned into fairy tales to make people feel better, as opposed to be accurate about how we got here. So I am proud that we are fighting those fairy tales right now. Um, I'm really proud of that. And I think, you know, if anything, it's something that my grandkids, if I have them, my grandkids will be talking about, right? And I, I feel good about that. I think that my frustration was that, you know, I complain all the time about queer history being erased or unrecorded. We hear rumors about Abraham Lincoln sharing the bed with a man, and it's like, well, what was that about? Was it a relationship or just a cold night? And then discovering your queerness, a co-founder of Black Lives Matter, I was like, oh, we are actively erasing modern queer history right now. It's happening before our eyes. You know, what's interesting is, and I try to look at this positively, I feel like I have also seen so much, like, why does that even matter? You know, why does that even matter? And then it's like, oh, you're trying to move... You're trying to move like a gay agenda. Like there's just like so much weird stuff out there. And I'm like, actually, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure that's what we're trying to do. I think, I think we're just trying to get free. You know what I mean? <laughs> I think we're just trying to get free. So there's still resistance, let's be clear. And I agree with you. I mean, erasing our contributions is detrimental to advancing our movements. Because when we do that, then we we actually end up fighting the same fights over and over again. It's like Groundhog's Day. You know what I mean? Where you're like, oh my gosh, are we still doing this? Are we still doing this? Why are we still doing this? People have already done this. Like we don't have to keep doing this. So that's what I'm hoping we're unlocking is the ability to make new mistakes and have having learned from the ones that we've already made time and time again. Absolutely. Going back to what you're saying about visibility, you know, as the movement has grown, like, have you experienced safety concerns because of that? Oh, yeah. Last year was really hard. <laughs> you have to imagine, you know, we we came out on the scene in 2013 and things got wild for a couple of years. And then things kind of calmed down a little bit, right? We, we had a maniac as a president and people kind of like went into the bunker to get ready for the battle, <laughs> giving shorthand here. But like, basically people were like, yeah, there's just not that much possible federally right now. So like, let's dig into what we're doing in cities and states and then wait for four years to be up. And last year, this movement reemerged in a way that captured the globe for a whole bunch of reasons. And it meant that we also became targets in a new way under a whole different set of political conditions. The Department of Justice, right, stopped actually serving its function and started kind of trying to create new categories of terrorism and put us at the forefront of that. We had a, a presidential administration that spent money and time and access slandering us and attacking us. It's never going to not be weird to me to get texts from people and say, oh, yeah, you know, Rudy Giuliani's son is talking about you on Twitter. 
and saying that you're a Marxist terrorist, right? It's never not going to be strange to me to have helicopters circling above my house because there's protests happening and then I'm getting death threats, right? And it's a lot. You know, I had to really beef up my security infrastructure last year and it's terrifying and it's annoying at the same time. One of the things I thought was so enlightening about the book was that you write that like while we label movements and we like to designate them as having a single person or event that initiates them, that actually all this work is ongoing. Movements, you say, do not have a specific beginning or end dates. So to that, to clarify, you know, Black Lives Matter did not start this movement. It did not begin the fight. It did play a big role, though. When did you see it become this like known and recognized force within the movement? Thank you for saying that and saying it in that way, because we have been fighting this narrative for so long. People always ask me, like, how did you start a movement? And I'm like, I didn't start a movement. (laughs) Black people have been trying to get free ever since we were brought here. Like, I cannot take any kind of credit for that. And I wasn't even alive then. But this is our generation's stamp on a movement that is ongoing. When I really started to know that this was breaking through was actually when I saw a episode of Law and Order, Criminal Intent, I think it was. And it was like this weird mashup of like that racism scandal that Paula Deen was at the center of and then the murder of Trayvon Martin. And of course, you know, Law and Order has the same elements. Every every franchise has the same elements and there's a trial scene. And then there's like what's happening outside the courthouse and there was a protest and people were holding signs that said Black Lives Matter. Now, mind you, the protest was really boring. I was like, that's not, that's not what we look like. You know what I mean? It was like very quiet and like whatever. But I was like, oh, this is a trip. This is a trip. Like there's, this is, this is breaking through and it's not just something that's happening in my city or something happening in your city, but this is something that people are paying attention to. And then before I let you go, you were now part of the Black Futures Lab. You're the principal there and you just completed the Black Census Project, which I believe was the largest survey of the Black community in like 150 years. That's right. And a part of that survey, you ask people like, what do you want for your future? That's right. I just wonder, like, how do you answer that question? Hmm. For my future, I want to be able to live three-dimensionally. And what that means for me is I want to be able to pursue joy. I want to be able to have the things I need to live well. And I want to be involved in the decisions that are impacting my life every single day. And that seems really simple. (laughs) But what I've learned over time is that there's a lot of work it's going to take to help get us there. And that's what I'm hoping my book, The Purpose of Power, which is out this week in paperback, can help us reorient to what is it going to take to get us to that place where we can be three-dimensional beings. That's a great answer. Thanks for the amazing conversation. This was fantastic. I really appreciate you. This was so fun. And that was Alicia Garza. Once again, her book, The Purpose of Power, is now out in paperback. 
And as always, if you enjoyed our interview with Alicia or any of our previous ones, please help us spread the word about the podcast. You can post on Twitter, on InstaStory, text all your group chats. All those things really are the biggest ways you can help our show continue to grow and continue making new episodes every single week. So thank you, thank you, thank you so much to everyone who does that. We're brought to you by The Advocate Magazine in partnership with GLAAD. I'm Jeffrey Masters. I will see you next week. Bye.